This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, thanks for downloading the Times Redbox podcast. Apologies, Luke Jones here still. Matt Chorley is away on holiday, sunning himself for one day more, but fear not, I'll be back in this chair tomorrow. Today, we've absolutely loads in store. We're going to be, amidst the, the stooshy around the UK government's plan to send uh, some asylum seekers to Rwanda, we're going to check in with the two other um, refugee schemes that the government announced in the last year, the Afghan Resettlement Scheme and the Homes for Ukraine Scheme. We're going to hear from some families families who um, are still struggling to actually house some Ukrainians uh, who they have said that they'll happily take, but the system uh, hasn't quite been able to actually get the people across to them yet. And we'll bring you the story of somebody who we've spoken to before on Times Radio, and in fact um, on this programme before. He's a young uh, gay Afghan refugee. He's 21. The UK government helped evacuate him from Afghanistan uh, last autumn. He's still in a hotel six months on. He's had to delay his start to university. Uh, His mental health, he said, has taken a massive hit. He's self-harming. The only person he speaks to day to day is um, a lady from the council who he says kindly talks to him. Um, But six months on, he still hasn't got anywhere to live. He hasn't been offered anywhere to live, he says. So we'll hear his story and the story of those families trying to help some Ukrainians in a moment. First, let's check in with our columnists. Uh, Today, we've got Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. Let's start with, um, well, continued trouble at mill for the Prime Minister. Um, Libby, just above your column in the Times today, there's an absolutely fabulous um, Seamus Jennings cartoon uh, with uh, Boris Johnson's Easter messages. Um, Forgive me my trespasses, um, asks whether he could love his neighbour, the Chancellor, and then just pleads, keep the faith, uh, as he um, (laughs) buries himself under a load of fixed penalty notices. Um, Libby, we've had this polling in the Times today suggesting that uh, quite a chunk of the population aren't pleased with the Prime Minister over Partygate and in their sort of word cloud of responses, liar is in the middle of it, bold. Yes, I think the lying to Parliament is is the big issue. I am with Lord Hennessy here, who is mm. nearly always right on these constitutional matters and nearly always wise on political matters. It's a terrible mess. Uh, these are laws which actually they should not have made as laws. They did it largely without Parliament, abusing the Infectious Diseases Act, which doesn't actually entitle you to lock everybody indoors and away from each other. And then they broke those laws. 
and and now there's this sort of situation of him saying, well, no, no, I didn't. And if the Metropolitan Police think he did, and it may turn out that he broke it several times more, uh, you know, it, it, it is the, the misleading of Parliament. It is the lying obfuscation, which does actually make us feel very insecure in, in a democracy. You know, it, we, mm. we, we look across Europe, we see Putin and we, we see the lies and we have seen the lies of Trump and his, some of his supporters in, in America and we feel insecure. We can't go on like this. And Lord Hennessy's point yesterday, Rachel, on the airways was that the Prime Minister with this, it's not a kind of... Um, minor incursion that he should be slapped on the wrist for, that this kind of went deeper and it and it trashed the, the position of Prime Minister and it also undermined the Constitution. Lord Hennessy, a constitutional historian, um, said that he had never been more worried for the state of the British con- Constitution than on the day that the Prime Minister um, somewhat apologised for his fine. Yeah, and we've got in the Times this morning the headline, Defiant PM insists he didn't break COVID rules. Mm. The police have decided that he did. So he's now saying that he's not taking any notice of what the police are concluding. Uh, he's he's um, misled Parliament, as Libby suggests, and that is very dangerous for the Constitution. You know, no, the Prime Minister can't be above the law. The Prime Minister can't um, mislead Parliament. It, these things matter, and the the rules are in place. The, the constitutional proprieties and conventions are in place to protect the democracy. Um, and uh, Peter Hennessy is absolutely right about that. Um, and he knows better than anyone. And I think the reason that uh, Boris Johnson's aides um, and supporters are briefing the paper this morning that he thinks he didn't break the rules is because of this constitutional point about Parliament that he he it's absolutely crucial for Boris Johnson to continue to insist that he didn't mislead mm. Parliament because that is an absolute sort of sackable offence for any prime minister. But, what but the I- problem the problem is that the voters, I think, have concluded that he did break the rules and that word cloud with liar at the centre of mm. it is so telling. So so the MPs have got a really big decision ahead of them. Do they want to stick by the prime minister who they in their heart of hearts think broke the rules or are they going to listen to what their constituents think? And do you think, though, aside from uh, all that happened in, in the past, Libby, and the parties and the rest, the prime minister, in terms of the task at hand, will be able to reframe the narrative as uh, a Downing Street source explains to Matt Dathan on the front of the paper today saying that the Prime Minister will of course apologise and again in his statement uh, but quote he will say we need to continue to focus on the huge priorities we need to deliver for the people No that it just won't do He, it's not as if he's the most brilliant thinker and administrator uh, that we've ever had uh, you know, can actually do without him. And I think it is the duty now of Conservative MPs with consciences to go to him and say, look, actually, this is the point where you go. I mean, I've, I've changed on this because uh, over you know recent times, I used to say, well, I, I think he'll go hmm. when he wants to go. But actually now I think he will be made to go I, I, because I do think there is, a, I hope there is sufficient honesty and sense in the Conservative Party to say to him, this is the moment to drop quietly out. You know, our policy, government policy will be unlikely to change because of that on any major issue. You know, departments Mm. will go on trying to work out how to tackle the cost of living crisis and how much more we can do for Ukraine and what we can do about migration. But, you know, the Prime Minister has lied. 
And, and how do you think that, um, Rachel, Conservative MPs will actually weigh that up in their minds over the coming days? Do, do you think that um, the 5th of May elections will be particularly decisive? Do you think the Wakefield by-election, wherever it comes, of course that um, red wall gain for the Tories uh, in the balance again, uh, will be decisive? Or, or do you think actually it will take an, another general election and whatever result that comes out of that? I think the May elections will be very important because that's the, the first critical test of... Um, you know, public opinion and what people think of the Prime Minister and the government. Uh, and I think this, Libby's right, this point about um, the MPs who are saying we can't possibly do anything in the middle of the Ukraine crisis. In fact, what that sort of battle with Putin shows more than anything is the importance of the truth. Um, and Putin uh, depends on lying and, and you know, um, propaganda uh, and not telling the truth. So if anything, that just reinforces the importance of democracy and the truth. Um, so I don't think the two things are at odds. If anything, they they correlate with one another. And what do you make, Libby, of, of the revelations that we got yesterday via the Sunday Times that, well, they were suggesting that the Prime Minister not only attended a party, um, as we know from the fines and, and suspect with, with more fines possibly incoming, but also the Lee Kane leaving one, his Director of Communications, was one that he instigated. Do you think that that will add a different, sharper flavour to the allegations or will they just be bundled in with the rest no, of the it's all there it's it's there we've sort of known quite a lot about that for quite a time anyway no i don't think there's anything new there i think the core thing just remains solid i think it really is time for his party to mm. tell him time's up and in terms of lots of the criticisms that the prime minister's had over his time in office and um, they've been um varied and far and wide but but again we've got um as of yesterday the archbishop of canterbury sticking the boot in rachel what did you make of that and i guess not necessarily just the the substance of what the archbishop was saying but the fact that you had the archbishop of canterbury from the pulpit decrying the actions of the prime minister and the home secretary calling it ungodly Mm. Well, of course, Priti Patel and Boris Johnson don't lack that one bit, but there's no reason why the Archbishop of Canterbury can't do that. And I think the problem with this whole Rwanda plan is really it feels like it's been dreamt up on the back of an envelope to distract attention from the Prime Minister's troubles over parties and also to throw red meat to the Tory backbenchers. Um, so it's a kind of, it feels like a sort of political stunt which uh, all the experts say is pretty unworkable, possibly illegal, and according to the Archbishop, also immoral. Um, so it's hugely problematic. Um, and I think it sort of just reinforces this point that actually what is Boris Johnson's purpose in being Prime Minister, apart from being Prime Minister for himself? So what is his agenda? What actually, how actually does he want to make the country better uh, and run things better? And it, it, that this sort of... Rwanda policy just reinforces the vacuum. Libby, I'm seeing a text on the screen here that involves the words Archbishop of Canterbury, stick to religion. Well, it is it is part of religion, but basically that's the Rwanda thing. Not going to happen, uh, unworkable, over-expensive, going to be legally challenged. It's a distraction at the moment. Uh, it's probably a distraction uh, which is rather at the expense of poor old Rwanda to be honest. No, I, no, nothing more to say on it. It's nonsense. Not going to happen. <laughs> um, let's move on to some uh, other news uh, back home. Seven in ten teenagers should go to university, Tony Blair is saying this morning. Um, Rachel, talk me through the, the logic of this. Is this something that you're behind? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting. So he's got a report out from the Tony Blair Institute this week saying it's actually 70% of young people going on to higher education because some of uh -huh. the higher education uh, could be within um, FE colleges as well as universities. 
But his argument, and I think he's right about this, whether or not you need a 70% target, I'm less sure about. But the argument that we're going to need more people better educated uh, with the skills of the future. And they've, his institute's done an analysis showing that actually the um, country, the economy, uh, the economy would get a boost if there were more people uh, educated at higher education level over the next 10, 15 years. Mm. Um, so I think uh, there is a sort of political um, n sort of um, hostility in government towards universities and higher education at the moment with talk of student caps, caps on student numbers and possible minimum grade requirements for people going on to university. And it's partly a kind of political thing that I think some Tories think that graduates don't vote conservative. Um, so they want to minimise that number in future. Uh, but actually, you know, you need people to have as many opportunities as, they, as possible to be educated to as high a level as possible, including with things like degree apprenticeships. So it's not just the kind of narrow three-year degree in classics mm. uh, or English, but it's actual technical and vocational education at a high level as well. And what does that include, Rachel? Sorry, because I'm confused as to where T levels and, and all of that fits in, which the education sector is always banging on about. But just explain yeah. for us. So T levels are the equivalent of A levels. That's what people uh, take at 16 to 18. No, 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 not at all. It is incredibly confusing. But um, people can go on and do um, degree an a degree apprenticeship, which is can be done at a university or at a college, uh, where you you get a degree, but at the same time you work, um, mm. and uh, you so you end up without any debt. You, in fact, you get a salary. Um, so there's different forms of higher education, which I think is very important. Uh, and I think the key thing when you're thinking about this target that Blair's setting is if, if there is an increase in higher education, it shouldn't just be in the kind of narrow three-year bachelor's degree. It has to be this broader definition mm. of higher education. Because that, Libya, has kind of proved not entirely helpful, hasn't it, in the past, forcing people into... As Rachel's saying there, just doing a sort of bog-standard three-year bachelor's degree, that sort of doesn't necessarily pump British productivity. It certainly doesn't. And quite a lot of degrees are a waste of time and quite a lot of graduates go in pretty much permanently to non-graduate jobs at the moment. Plus, at the moment, the student loan repayments ensure the, the extraordinary way that they've structured the interest rates means some of them may be paying occasionally up to 12% for a period. I think shoveling students into universities sort of willy-nilly, oh, get, let's hit a target, let's hit 70%, when often the degrees are not very useful at all, is just absurd. Um, I am greatly in favour of uh, degree apprenticeships. You know, if, if, gosh, if you can get them, I mean, that's, that's the thing to do. You're mm. actually working, you're not getting into debt, you're getting your degree. I'm also in favour of funding mature students you know, people over the age of 21, you know, who, who have already started jobs, who maybe started, got interested in something, you know, are doing a job, they're bicycle mechanics, they suddenly realise they really want to, uh, you know, become sort of real engineers. Free evening classes in IT and engineering and physics. It shouldn't stop. The presumption that everybody at the age of 18 is suddenly needing to be educated formally for another three years one way or another just doesn't wash for me. You know, I want a sense of, of ongoing 
skills, mm. you know, and, and for us to consider some of the practical skills uh, as being at a very high level. You know, in Germany, you are often Herr Professor and you're actually an electrician or a plumber, you know, because you're a very, very high class one. I yeah. just, I, that, that is what I would rather see than this bald target of Blair's. And in terms of this point there, Rachel, I guess one of the problems with this is the availability of it. You know, getting a apprenticeship is quite difficult. Mm. And and the apprenticeship levy has sort of driven a lot of the um, spending towards higher level apprenticeships for people who are actually already in jobs. Whereas what you want is people who can get uh, apprenticeships in order to get a job and get a degree at the same time. I think Libby's absolutely right. That's a very good model. Uh, and, and employers need to be encouraged to take on more of those kinds of apprentices rather than using their apprenticeship levy, which is a kind of government tax, mm. to fund their you know executives to go on um, MBA courses, which is what some of them are using the levy for. Yeah. Um, so, so it's... Um, um, yeah, exactly. And very funny then, Libby, um, tell us about the Easter joy which you, you write about in the, in the paper today. Well, first of all, explain yarn bombing for us, because this was genuinely new for me. Did you never go out? Do you live on the 14th floor of the news building? <laughs> well, I don't, live, honestly, I, I don't live in a place where people are knitting, or gorilla knitting. I had never well, heard it's all over the place. You, you just really want to get out of Libby, whatever, did you whatever hear, did you hear that, dual, Rachel? little miserable bit of London you live in. Um, <laughs> Libby, Rachel said she hadn't honest, heard of it either and Rachel is out Oh, good grief. Well, you, you've just got to get out it's more, kids. Hat. You really it's do. It's a Suffolk thing. Yeah. Everywhere you go, there are, there are knitted Easter bonnets on post boxes and, um, and bus stops and so on. Do you live in a uh, Map and Lucia novel? <laughs> no, no, not rem- not remotely. Listen, this is all over the country. It was in the Times the other day. Do not read the Times. You know, it's taken off in a big way. Uh, what I was just saying is I, I rather like this with mm. the sun shining on a bank holiday and the contrast of sort of silliness like this, because this is lovely yarn bombing and you know, there's knitted bits on things and so on. It's the opposite of graffiti, which is kind of dour, dark, angry, marking your territory. This is sort of saying, oh, whoops, looky, here's some, you know, fluffy Easter chicks wrapped round a lamppost. Um, and I think uh, my, my wider point was that in the middle of the extreme worry about living standards in Ukraine and a dodgy government, um, it genuinely is OK to accept moments of light-heartedness. Mm. And even Wittgenstein says sometimes you must descend to the green places of silliness from the high, stark, <laughs> stark philosophical heights. Um, we are beset around with dismal stories like Bunyan's Pilgrim. We actually do have sometimes to acknowledge that it's okay. Mm. I feel like that kind of fluffy chick of the comment page saying all this, but actually it's quite important. Sometimes people just do get to do. I can hear it in your voice, Luke, living in the miserable place you do with no knitted post boxes and everything. Not yet. You know, I, I can hear you. You're going downhill, <laughs> Needles man, downhill. are sharpening as we speak. Um, Rachel, and, and actually, Libby points out, even, you know, Vladimir Zelensky, who couldn't be in a more um, difficult, depressing, challenging situation, still when he does these videos, um, cracking jokes has a kind of lightness to him. I think it's so fascinating and positivity is one of the most powerful forces in human nature. I've um, 
Alice and I, uh, Alice Thompson and I have a book out next month, actually, based on our podcast, mm. Past Imperfect. Um, and it's called What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. And, and it's based on those interviews. And we've also talked to experts about why and how people overcome trauma. And what a lot of the interviewees say is that what they wish they'd known was that it would all be okay. And what the experts say is that one of the things that is most effective in helping people overcome difficult things is optimism and positivity and not in a kind of happy clappy way mm. but in a very sort of um hard nose so there's one study of a group of nuns um who had an identical lifestyle in every way you know same clothes same food um and the nuns who'd been most positive when they went in and most optimistic when they went into the convent at the age of 20 lived longer than the nuns who'd been more pessimistic so actually positivity is good for your health um and there's a sort of concept of learned optimism so rather than just kind of you know um happy clappy thinking everything will be okay pollyanna style mm. that you can almost train your mind to think more positively and that that is good for your health and your mental well, well-being but it goes beyond positivity positivity maybe means you have to be sort of totally optimistic it goes into what Wittgenstein says you know the green hills of silliness actual absurdity sometimes watching a child doing something ridiculous for fun you know can absolutely raise your spirits and it's fine that it should raise your spirits even if everything around seems so dismal I think I think a, a bit yeah. of foolishness a bit of absurdity the fact that Zelensky was a comic performer I, I watched yeah. that thing of his um he, he was an artist a comic performer that is a strength it is a strength even when things are deeply deeply grim Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis up next what is happening with the UK government's Afghan resettlement scheme and homes for Ukraine 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I'm Luke Jones and for Matt Chorley, it's time for this. How is the UK's refugee policy going? The Archbishop of Canterbury yesterday described the new scheme to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda as the opposite of the nature of God. Priti Patel, as discussed previously, has hit back in the Times this morning saying those who criticise are failing to offer their own solutions to the problem of migrants making the dangerous channel crossing. But as this argument plays out, you might be asking yourself, what happened with the last two refugee schemes we've had in the past year or so? The scheme first to help Afghans fleeing the Taliban as our troops pulled out and Ukrainians fleeing the Russian invasion. The government announced lots of help for those two groups, so how is it going? First, the Afghan scheme. For the past six months, I've been speaking to a young Afghan refugee here on Times Radio. We're calling him Aziz. He is 21 years old. I spoke to him on this programme just after he arrived in the UK in October. He told me about why he fled Kabul, about how he managed to get over the border to Islamabad once Western troops had left, and then onto a UK government plane and scheme which flew him here to safety. He said he left the country because he's gay and he feared being killed under the Taliban regime. If I am born this way, if I feel this way, why am I in Afghanistan? I should have not been here. Because, you know, uh, you could not come out of the closet. They would just maybe kill you or just throw you out of the house. And had you heard about people where that had happened? Yeah, of course. Many cases I have seen people shoot their own sons. You know, I, I wanted to escape. I wanted to escape. I wanted my family to escape. And because I knew that these, when these people come, there is no life for us. On the first night when they came, uh, I took a blade. I wanted to, to end this because I could not, you know, I could not. Um, I was feeling really pressurized. I thought everything has finished. And I was scared that at every moment they can come to our house. At mm. Every second they will just knock on our door just asking for me or my dad. He arrived in the UK and was put into hotel quarantine because at the time Afghanistan was a red country on that traffic light system. And this is where things started not to go to plan. He tested negative for COVID throughout and yet he was kept in hotel quarantine without explanation for 16 days instead of the usual 10 And then, when free, he was put in a hotel while the government tried to find him a proper place to live. And he was there for a long old while. The thing that that, makes me uh, uncomfortable, being not settled, like hotel, uh, you can't buy uh, eh, some stuff you need, you can't cook, and the food is really bad at the hotel. I'm thankful to everything, but uh, it's a totally different thing that they eat here, so... I really want to be settled to and go to work, uh, go to university. So I hope that um, I will be settled like soon. But it wasn't soon. I spoke to him last night. It has been six months and he is still in a hotel. Hello. Hi there. You're right. It's Luke. Hi, Luke. How are you? Yeah, really good. Um, thanks so much for um, agreeing to have another chat. I just wanted to, um, as I said, sort of check in with you every now and again and see um, and see how things are getting on. Yeah, you're welcome. But things are are going really confusing. Confusing. Uh, yeah, it's really com- confusing. It's like ruining my mental health again. And it's been like my six months, so I'm staying at the hotels and still in hotels. No- 
yeah, I was still look, waiting for a house. And <clears throat> and besides that, it's it's uh, uh, I I couldn't get my my biometric residence permit in January, so I missed my semester because I really wanted to continue my studies here. So you had hang on, so you had your place and you needed that bit of paper yeah. from the government, and it didn't come in yeah. time. So you've had to what delay it a year longer. Yeah, actually, I told them that um, if you can't give me the card until that, just just write me a letter from the home office, hmm. uh, so that I can give it to the uni and and the student finance. And but unfortunately, they couldn't do uh, that, so I have to wait now. It's yeah. like waste of time. So, what are you doing with yourself during the day then? If you're if you're having to live in a hotel, which you know for six months is is pretty tough. Um, you haven't, been able to start really, uni- you haven't been able to start your university place, so, I mean, you must be quite bored. Yeah, actually, it's quite boring. Uh, when I came to this hotel uh, in, in, uh, in this area, so um, there was nothing to do, and I really have uh, mental health issues. So um, uh, I asked the local authorities for some courses, if they had some courses uh, to study or something to keep me busy, then I started some courses and for um, a couple of weeks I was busy in that but besides that it's nothing to do here and everywhere you go and everything you ask for and it's the same answer just wait until you get a place to live yeah and have they explained to you the delay and, and why it's taking so long um actually I'm I'm not so sure and I've just heard that UK has shortages of homes. Hmm. Um, besides that, it's it's um, really a double standard and discrimination because I'm 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 under ACRS scheme. So those who came under the Arab scheme, they will have priority over us and everything. If it's in terms of placing or anything else, government will give them priority. How and do you mean? Like. There are two schemes for Afghan people. One was uh, ACRS, Afghan Resettlement uh, Citizens Resettlement Scheme, hmm. and one was the Arab. Arab are those people who have uh, worked with the British yes. troops or the British Embassy. So um, there is no equality uh, between these two schemes. Like, if if there is house, they will give priority to the Arab scheme. If he accepts it. So he will take it. Otherwise, when he rejects that property, they will then offer it to ACRS. I see. If, yeah. Over the housing, they will give priority over everything. Mm. And in terms of um, your mental health, how how is that presenting itself? How are you and what kind of help for that are you able to get? Um, uh, since I came here, I was asking for psychologist, counselling or psychiatrist. I said, I told like the, the the GP that whatever you think is right for me, just do it. At first, it was like you don't have an NHS number, you don't have this, you don't have that. But um, since I came here in January, I came here in January to this area, and I have been referred for um, counselling, and I'm still waiting. That I couldn't get a an early appointment, and and I had to wait two months until I uh, got an appointment hmm. uh, and it's actually my mental mental health was really uh, 
got worse like two weeks ago. I wasn't feeling really well. Um, I did a bit of self-harming as well. Self-harming? Yeah. And it was really bad. Um, because we were told as uh, under this scheme, we were eligible to apply for our families. Um, I have told you in my interviews, my dad was part of uh, the past government and he was someone that uh, directly facing these uh, terrorist groups and, and putting them behind bars. Yeah. So um, we were told um, to wait until your biometrics are done. I, we said, okay. When we did our biometrics, the Home Office told us to wait until you get your cards. Now, the past week, we received our cards. And now when you ask them, they say it's not, it's not going to be open because of Ukrainians, Ukraine. Like, we, I, I feel sorry for the Ukrainians. And my heart goes with the Ukrainians. I really feel sorry for what's going on in their country because I, I have come from a country where war was war damaged like they, they it ruined everything but it's it's not fair like yeah i don't know where like they give them an extended family schemes besides their spouse and kids they can bring their their sisters their mom dad their grandparents and i'm just like begging everyone for since i came here to take my family out or at least my dad and there is no positive answer now when the ukraine thing happened uh, it's like they are telling us, like directly telling us, because of the Ukrainians, um, there is nothing at the moment, and there is no way. Um, it's like double standards. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We, they, we are treated as as lesser human beings. Um, and, I don't know. And in terms what? of who you can talk to about all of this, obviously your fa- your family are back in Afghanistan. I wonder, have you have you been able to find and, and make friends? here in the UK, either amongst the, the people that you, you that you came here with or with people, I don't know, at like the, the course you mentioned you're doing or anything like that? Um, the people that I came here with, as they were in the same community, um, I'm still in touch with some of them. I'm, I've really like, um, uh, how can I say this? I'm really um, anti, I don't like Afghan people because... That everything that happened to me was because of Afghan people. Yeah. Um, I really don't get along with Afghan people that much, but still from the same community, I have a few friends that I made and I'm, I'm in touch with them and I see them sometimes. And besides that, uh, and the course was online, so I couldn't uh, meet those people in person. Um, I'm, uh, I really have issues of getting along with friends and, and making making new friends because it's like a fear in my in my mind and um i don't trust people <clears throat> and it's it's like a social phobia that i have yeah the doctor told me so um it's really hard for me to get along with people and find new friends so who are you talking to on a, on a day-to-day basis Actually, no one, no one. And there's one lady that comes from the council, uh, the local authorities here. Um, she tries to help me a lot, but obviously there's nothing in her hands, and she tries her best to to mm. to talk to me, to to uh, to help 
me, but she can't because uh, she it's it's not under her authorities to to help me. Uh, but still, she's really helpful and she talks with me sometimes. Hmm. And yeah. so this all hinges on to go back to, to your original point. Still, um, however many months in, six months in, getting a proper yeah. place to live that isn't a hotel. And once you've got that, many things, other things, should fall into place being able to take up your place at university and, and making a fresh life and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The issue here is that in these hotels, there are people who have British passports. Those people, they have lived here in the UK for the at least, at least minimum eight years, 10 years, 20 years. They, those people, they know about UK, they know about the rules, regulations and everything. You know, they... When they are offered properties, I have seen them. I have seen people that they are offer, offered properties two or three times, even three times. They reject it. They reject it. And I haven't offered. I I haven't been offered anything in six months. Anything. I'm just a single person. The Arab scheme. They they offer them many many times. They just keep rejecting it, and nobody cares about it. They're gonna offer them again. I can remember when we spoke. Uh, well, it will have been a fair, fair few months ago, and it was just after you had arrived here in the UK, and you were telling me about when you were on the plane coming to the UK, yeah. and you were looking out the window, and you were just so happy and relieved and full of hope for the life you'd be able to live. Yeah. I wonder if you still got some of that in you. Do you still have lots of hope, or is this, or is this beating oh. some of that out of you? <clears throat> Actually, actually, the British people, they are really kind um, and some people are really helpful. But the authorities, the authorities, they are really pretty slow and, and just the double standards, not treating all of the people equally. That's mm. the issue. Besides that, people are really good here. People want to help, but those people who want to help they don't have anything mm. in their hands and those people who have the authority they're not treating everyone like I, I here since i came here i have reached a lot of people i have reached people i have reached mps and but uh, nobody can do anything with the home office and they they do what they want that's aziz the young afghan refugee who the UK government helped to evacuate to Britain last year and six months later he is still in a hotel, unable to take up his university place, unable to get help with his mental health, which as you heard there is getting worse. Um, That was him speaking to me last night. In a statement, the Home Office told us, um, the brutal and barbaric invasion of Ukraine has meant we needed to move quickly to set up schemes so that people can find safety in the UK, but the tireless work to support Afghans also seeking housing continues and to suggest otherwise is wrong. They say the UK made one of the largest commitments to resettle Afghan refugees of any country and so far we have provided homes for more than 6,000 Afghan evacuees. They say the housing of Afghan individuals and families can be a complex process and we are supporting people with many different needs. Um, Let's hear about the situation facing some people trying to actually help some Ukrainians at this time now um, find home here in the UK. Um, Debbie Gaze is live with us who we've been speaking to on weekend breakfast over the past few weeks. Morning Debbie. Good morning, Luke. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. And we've also got Dr. Bender Grosvenor, who is the presenter of Britain's Lost Masterpieces, who is also um, stuck in this system. Is that right? 
I'm, I'm half stuck. We, we have some people who came on Thursday, actually, but we're waiting for a few more. Ah, gosh. Well, first of all, tell us about Thursday. Oh, Thursday was an exciting moment. My wife went to meet Yulia and her two daughters, who are uh, five and six at Edinburgh Airport. Um, and they got here. The, the, that part of the journey was quite seamless. And um, we've had a lovely Easter weekend. We had an, an Easter egg hunt yesterday for the girls and my daughter, who uh, are all getting on very well. And um, it's, it's been really lovely so far. Mm. So what is the, what's the other half of it? What's the holdup? Are you expecting more people? Uh, yes, we signed up for, we, we, my wife encountered on Facebook a group of six Ukrainians who were um, in a, a, fa a family group of family friends living in Warsaw. They'd got out quite early on from, from nearby Kiev. And um, the the visas for Yulia and her two daughters came through within about three weeks, uh, but much sort of chasing in, involving various um, people like our MP and who's been very helpful. Um, but we're still waiting for three more visas, mm. um, one of which is, you know, there's all sorts of sort of snags you get involved in once you get enmeshed in the system. And the latest one is that we, because the visa took quite a long time for one of the people, the passport expired, um, oh. and so had to get a new passport. And then, of course, there's no way to upload the new passport until someone from the Home Office Visa Centre um, you know, gets in touch with you and if they don't do that then you're kind of stuck waiting in, in limbo and it's been easter weekend so, so no one really has been near a desk have they um uh, no. <laughs> and debbie updates on your situation correct me if i'm wrong um you signed up to this the, the scheme quite early on that's correct yep yep <laughs> found a lady um went through the visa process got the visa three weeks later and then she said that she'd already found refuge in germany because it was taking so long ah. um which is a real you know, fantastic that she's safe and in a yeah. good place, but really frustrating for us. And now we're trying to find someone else to host, and I cannot believe how difficult it is. Really? Yeah, it's really hard, because I think um, a lot of Ukrainian families are using social media, and they're just saying, you know, we're looking for somewhere, which is brilliant. And then, of course, they get swamped with offers. Mm. So you can sort of say, oh, you know, get in touch. We've got this, that, and the other to offer you. And you don't hear from them or you do hear from them and then you don't hear from them again and then you don't know if you should if you should try offer to help somebody else and it's just a minefield it's really difficult yeah. so frustrating but we've got lots of people in in the town where i live there's there's several families have started to arrive now which is great and how big a town are we talking oh it's it's this it's a really gentle market town in norfolk and it's mm. um i think it's about eight thousand people so yeah. it's, it's quite a big town but it's not a you know, it's not mm. a particularly large place, but, you know, the community have really come together to mm. want to help and support um, the, these people who need some safety. So, and, and, and Dr. Grover, Dr. tell us about then um, how, you said you had a very good Easter weekend, um, how how was it meeting um, the, the two people who have already arrived to stay with you? And what are your, what are your concerns about uh, actually how you're going to be able to cope and, and properly provide for them? Well, I, I don't have many concerns. It's it's so far so good. Um, we're we're clutching our mobile phones to um, always be accessed to to Google Translate. It's not quite the Babel fish from Hitchhiker's yes. Guide to the Galaxy, but it, it's pretty handy. Um, and my my wife has has um, going to the local sc our school today to to try and um, uh, make sure that the the two girls can can start school as soon as possible. Um, and the, the local council here in the Scottish Borders has been very helpful. I mean, so far, I think once, once you get through that initial kind of home office system, you know, the, the system run by a department whose DNA is to kind of keep people out, mm. um, the, then everything kicks into place really quite well so far. 
um, and it's very heartening. And you know, we we live in a, a, a big old rambling house here in the Scottish countryside, and um, we've got plenty of space. And uh, as I see it, I mean, I don't want to sort of to get too profound about it, but I think when you see what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and and what Russia has to offer, I mean, is basically sort of savage barbarousness. Then it, it feels to me that that all of us in Europe are engaged in this collective proxy yeah. war in in the shadow of evil and we we will those who can who have the resources and the space to do something to help um should um Yulia's husband for example is is in the army of course back in ukraine so yeah. uh, i think i think the more of us that can um join this cause even tangentially the mm-hmm. better well let's bring in um Jane Finley Blackwell, who's also joined in this cause, and Jane, am I right in saying that you, um, like Dr. Grover, you've got, you've got uh, some people who have already arrived? Yes, a family of um, four women, and um, we went and collected them from the Polish-Ukrainian border um, and drove them um, home. You, you collected them from the Ukrainian border. Yeah. Gosh, why did you end up doing that? Um, because and I'm, I'm listening sorry, to um, Debbie saying that you know, people go quiet, and there's this absolute terror from, um, and understandably from um, the refugees, people wanting to come over. They know their situation is dire, but they don't know what they're coming to, and they don't know us, and they don't know our country, mm. and they're terrified of um, the refugee camps, understandably. And um, the connection I had made with um, Nadia for my family, she... Um, felt unsafe and I said would you feel safe if I came to get you and she said yes so I went to get her. Gosh bless you and so you you drove or did you fly there? I flew to Berlin and met a a very old um, uh, polytechnic friend Pete Jones and we drove from Berlin um, to Krakow stayed in the Airbnb in Krakow and the next morning drove to um, to Medica to pick them up. Mm. And how are things at home now? Four people are, are quite it's quite a number to have join your household. Um, well, we're incredibly fortunate that our house is big enough to do that. Mm. Um, and we are also incredibly fortunate that, the, that um, the family and the women are absolutely wonderful. We get on all get on very well. Um, I understand we have some issues with translation. And as you said, Babel Fish would be fantastic, wouldn't it? But um, we, you know, it, it's all really good. They've got mm. two small dogs. And um, yeah, we have no issues with them in, in our space whatsoever. We were just hearing about um, questions about getting kids into school. I, I wonder for you, Jane, other questions about maybe um, health services, maybe some kind of um, provision for supporting them deal with what they've been through and what they've maybe seen. Do you feel the the actual government and, and the authorities coming to your aid to actually provide services that they might need? Well, again, I think that the, the, the quote that, that our home office is in their DNA to keep keeps people out is completely and utterly accurate. And um, some of the problems that I felt I had was, was um, trying to reassure the family that people in the UK wanted them um, on a daily basis. We had all the problems with getting the visas and, you know, with the bureaucracy. That that was really the biggest concern, saying, no, the people of the UK want you. It's just our government that says it's yeah. they worked quickly to set up a scheme, but they worked quickly to set up a scheme that didn't work. So um, so we have those issues. But once we got here, um, we're Cornwall Council, who were very good and very swift with helping and um, helping them um, get registered. Yes, we needed to register with a doctor, and I think there will clearly be um, some support needed, but we haven't found that to be... Yeah. issue in Cornwall so far. 
I mean, we have found central government issues in terms of getting the visa sorted, in terms of the mm. biometrics, in terms of you know other registrations, and far from simple. Um, and but yeah, apart from and, and just sorry. finally, I, I thought I'd ask um, Debbie. We started this whole half hour just uh, talking to a, a young um, Afghan who came here and is still in a hotel after six months. Do you think, especially given the situation, the picture that you're painting for us, where actually there are offers of of, of homes for Ukrainians that aren't necessarily being taken up do you think the government should widen all of this out and say you know if, if you've expressed an interest in, in in housing a ukrainian fleeing war um how's about taking one of the many afghans who need a home or someone oh. from another part of the world it does seem like a logical leap doesn't it but i know we're not always good at that but why not i mean you've got people with big kind hearts i think the thing with the ukrainian crisis at the moment is it's you know it's had a lot of publicity and and we all see it all the time and and, you know when you see somebody getting bombed it uh, you know pulls on your heartstrings and you want to help whereas I think the others are probably less well known Mm. so I think it would be a great idea to to widen that out and let people help where they can. Well thank you for all of you for for helping us and uh, for telling us about what you've been up to, what you've been trying to do. Uh, Debbie Gaze, Dr. Bender Grosvenor, and also Jane Finley-Blackhall. Uh, the, the views and experiences from Cornwall, the Scottish Borders and Norfolk. And that's it from us today. Thanks very much for downloading. You can um, get in touch with what you uh, what you made of all that we've heard there. I'm at LukeJones03 on Twitter. And you can um, and you can email us at Times Radio by emailing studio at times.radio. Thanks for subscribing. That is it from me. Uh, keeping Matt's seat warm. He'll be back tomorrow. So do tune in then. Bye-bye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.